0: Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands, parks, and today, renewable energy. I'm Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities in Denver.
1: And I'm your co-host, Kate Gretzinger, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today on the show, we're talking to researcher Grace Wu about her work looking at the land use needs of renewable energy and how we can balance that with conservation. It's pretty exciting stuff. But before we get to that, let's do the news.
0: Well, big news this week from the Colorado River. This week, the lower basin states came to an agreement to reduce their water use by about 13%. You'll remember the Interior Department has been asking the states, and this is to say uh, Arizona, Nevada, and California, asking them to come up with a plan to conserve water for the past year, basically, Last month, Interior published a proposal that would have resulted in massive cuts to either Arizona or California, and it looks like that was enough to scare everyone back to the drawing table. So the new plan, Arizona and California will cut 3 million acre-feet of water use over the next three years in an exchange for $1.2 billion of Inflation Reduction Act money. That is an average of one million acres each year, one and a half million acres coming by the end of 2024. That is great, but unfortunately not enough. As Jonathan Thompson writes in his excellent weekly newsletter, we're only looking so far at half of the minimum amount of cuts that the Fed say are needed to shore up the Colorado River system and its reservoirs for the long term. Now, there is still another 700,000 acre-feet of cuts that Arizona and California have promised to figure out sometime, or the feds could step in again. And there's still the question of what happens after 2026, when there's no more Inflation Reduction Act money to buy off farmers. In other words, this is better than nothing, but it is far, far away from a long-term solution. We are kicking the can down the road by a few years and hoping the long-term drought goes away or at least reduces itself by a little bit. In the meantime, the Interior Department will consider the Lower Basin proposal. There will be a public comment period on it. Regardless of what happens, we will see cuts in one form or another before the end of this year.
1: Also, the Bureau of Land Management is currently holding public hearings on its proposed rule to put conservation on equal footing with uses like oil drilling and cattle grazing on public lands. The first of those hearings was held online last week. The second will be held tomorrow, that's Thursday, May 25th, in Golden, Colorado at 5 p.m. There are also hearings scheduled for Albuquerque and Reno in the coming weeks and a final online hearing on June 5th. We'll put a link in the show notes for more information on all of those.
0: And if you happen to be at the Denver listening session tomorrow, please come by and say hi. I will be there listening as well.
1: Grace Wu is an assistant professor in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Barbara. Before joining UCSB, Grace was a fellow at the Nature Conservancy and the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis. Grace, welcome to the pod. Thank you for an invitation. Happy to be here. So we asked you here today to discuss your recent work aimed at identifying ways to minimize the negative land and ocean impacts of renewable energy development needed to achieve net zero emissions. We um, were lucky enough to attend the Society of Environmental Journalism conference a few weeks ago in Boise, which is where we uh, saw you speak on a panel about this research. And it was really exciting because um, as you know, our needs for renewable energy increase, um, our needs for conservation are also increasing. And you kind of looked at how we can do both. So um, I would love it if you could just sort of describe this study um, as if you were telling a friend about it. Like, what did you do? (laughs) Uh, We wanted
2: to look at whether it was possible to achieve the most ambitious climate target, which according to Broad consensus in the science community is net zero greenhouse gas emissions economy-wide. And whether that was compatible with conservation goals, could we do that without negatively impacting land? Um, And of course that assumption is that renewable energy requires a lot of land. Um, So we really set out to figure out where we should be citing all of this new energy infrastructure and how to do that while protecting natural and working lands.
0: It's a a big undertaking. How do you go about even getting to the how? How do we determine this phase of of a study like this? With the, the number of things you have to take into account to come up with that that number?
2: Yeah. So there are a lot of working parts. Um, I to give a little context and history of what led to the study. Um, So I've been working with the Nature Conservancy for quite some time. I was a postdoc with them more recently. And before that, we had been scheming to work on a study that would answer what they've been doing on kind of a project by project basis. Um, Very small scale, looking at win-win solutions for renewable energy and wildlife. And we wanted to see whether this was possible, uh, like across a very large region and, we started out with just California. We did this for now the Western states, um, and we wrapped up a study looking at this nationally. So uh, we've been kind of like telescoping out to see whether at what scales this we could answer this question. We would get a positive answer. Um, lots of moving parts. So we did. Uh, we looked at the energy modeling component, um, which we worked really closely with Ryan Jones at Evolved Energy to use a, their leading energy model. Um, that they've used to examine net zero targets um, in the U.S. and internationally. Um, and we worked also with um, Emily Leslie at Montero Mountain to actually model the footprint of transmission lines, which is kind of a really uh, exciting and novel um, addition to our study.
0: So what's the top line finding before we get into the details and, and uh all the different scenarios. What's the, the the top line of this study in terms of is this possible?
2: The good news is that it's definitely possible. Uh, we it, it definitely so that I think um, is something we can definitively say across all of the scales that we've examined this question for. The caveat, of course, to that is. It comes with a range of all of these assumptions that I alluded to on both the energy side and uh, what we can continue to to discuss on the actual natural and working land side. We have to really plan um, in a very systematic way um, and do this type of landscape level planning to ensure that we're avoiding development in those areas. The remainder, the residual is enough for this massive build out, um, but it of course requires coordination across multiple uh, stakeholders, land use like the actual land managers, um, and the developers, and of course people who plan and uh, like transmission lines to be able to have all these moving parts come together in a way that has the least impact.
1: So, Grace, what were the different scenarios you looked at? Um, there, I believe there were three different sort of um, energy build-out scenarios. Could you describe those for us um, and maybe explain how you sort of settled on those three?
2: Yeah. So we looked at what we called energy policy cases. Um, These come from fairly recent history of um, doing these types of decarbonization studies across the entire economy. Um, The And actually a lot, the history of this is that it really started out in California. California was grappling with, should we go with high, assume a lot of electrification or are we going to go the hydrogen or perhaps the biofuels um, heavy route. And these have started to become coined as the high electrification scenario. Um, The slow electrification, which means more biofuels, more more hydrogens, non-electricity energy carriers. And then uh, we have this other scenario that also kind of originated uh, in California, which is the renewables only um, and it really comes from this desire to eliminate all fossil combustion from the from the energy system as a whole. Um, so we looked at these three and uh, we centered really on the high electrification scenario because we found that it was the uh, most efficient in terms of just from an energy perspective, it had lowest cost, and it also had the lowest land use requirements, um, and that's very much related to the fact that it's the most energy efficient scenario.
1: Sorry, you said the the least land requirements or the the most? It had the least. The least land, yes. Oh, yep. could you? I'm sorry. Could you explain that because I'm my understanding was that sort of the solar and wind. Um, types of renewables take up more land than things like hydrogen and biofuels. Um, so I feel like I'm missing something here.
2: Yeah, well, this is a, actually a very counterintuitive um, understanding of, of what these scenarios mean. So high electrification, even though it means we use a lot more electricity. And um, I mentioned that, yes, renewables consume quite a lot of land, especially compared to conventional Sources of energy. Um, the the, cr- the uh, crutch of this is that high electrification uses the energy much more efficiently than a slow electrification scenario. And one good example of this is our cars. So the internal combustion engine, which is our gasoline and diesel fuel power, uh, powered cars, use that energy at a much lower. Between twenty to thirty percent utilization of that raw energy input, whereas electric vehicles can use eighty to ninety percent of that electricity wow. and turn it into useful kinetic movement. Um, so it's we just need to generate less energy in total um, to be able to satisfy our end uses.
0: While we're talking about more electricity, you are in fact talking about less overall energy because of the inefficiency of engines.
2: Exactly yes and that that transfer that concept carries over to other end uses not just transportation but also our heating um, and cooking and industrial uses. so it, there's a major efficiency gain by just wholesale electrifying. Um, and it when we look at the so you mentioned biofuels, Biofuels is one of the most inefficient in terms of land use requirements, and we actually do model and um, quantify the amount of land associated with growing that amount of biofuels. And um, if you take a look at the actual figures, you can see that uh, for for the slow electrification scenarios, the amount of land dedicated to biomass, purpose-grown biomass, exceeds that of wind and and solar.
0: And and then you're still talking about having to burn it in order to convert it to electricity, which then gets you back to the inefficiency. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Very low efficiency. All right. So then give us a sense of how much land we are talking about for, let's say, the high renewables scenario. Lots of wind and solar. Uh, I presume a fair amount of, of hydro in that mix. And then obviously the transmission capacity necessary to get all of that into homes and cars and everything else. How much land are we talking about?
2: We're so for just wind and solar alone, which comprise the largest share of uh, energy d- like generation um, by 2050, we're talking about for solar between two to three million acre- um, acres across all the scenarios um, with the upper end ha- corresponding the scenarios that have actually more land use protections. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but, We can also explain why that that trend is there. Um, And for wind, it's larger. So it's nine to 15 million acres. Um, And the reason for that is we actually quantify the total land use requirements for wind. Um, This is a contentious point. A lot of people will counter that with, well, land for actual wind turbines is only between one to 5% of the total land use requirements for a wind farm. Um, and we believe that the total land area really captures the challenges associated with siding. Sure. It's, of course, you can continue to graze cattle um, grow crops between turbine pads and substations and roads. Um, but there have been several studies, um, like dozens of studies documenting that there are wildlife avoidances uh, around the turbines. That's, not just the direct impacted area. Um, And of course, it ranges depending on the species and the location, but we definitely see wildlife avoiding the entire wind farm area. Um, So, and that's, we've seen this before with uh, natural gas wells, right? That that the fragmentation that happens with that development makes it
0: unusable for certain species. And and I just want to put that, that number in context, you're talking two to three million acres. In the the U.S. is what nearly two billion acres. The lower forty-eight is uh, some smaller number than that. I don't know if the, the top of my head, um, but obviously we're, we're talking about a relatively small percentage in terms of total surface area here.
2: Yes, yes, yeah. So in total, I can give a few more numbers to put that into other con- like more specific context. So that gives you seventeen. 17- to 12 12 to 17 million acres for wind and solar. Um, In the entire scenario, we're seeing 20 to 40 million acres for all renewables. So that the remainder is primarily that biomass. Um, Mm. And we haven't talked about that. A little bit of land for transmission. Um, And you can compare that to 30 million acres for corn ethanol. So that's about 40% of all corn that's grown in the US is being used for corn ethanol.
0: Um, so, so, a, we're so basically order. A, tiny, a tiny fraction of that is all you need for, for wind and solar then?
2: About a third or well, half, a third. Yeah, no, half. So no, it's not a tiny yeah. fraction, a fraction. Yeah. It's a fraction, but it's not – we already use that land currently <laughs> for right. The land is
0: already being used for inefficient means right now. But exactly. that's not to say you can just right, replace all the cornfields with wind and solar. But exactly. it's this is not an out-of-control, unimaginable scale that we're talking about.
2: Right. Well, well – the caveat, of course, is this is just the Western U.S. Um, okay. So we would have to scale that up for the remainder of the con- contiguous U.S. Um, we have those numbers. We have a separate conversation about that for a study that we just released this week. Um, oh, but it, yeah. is comp- it is less than that. And I, if we do just like the quick back of the envelope math, amount of corn ethanol, ethanol land should be, uh, could be repurposed. For wow. all of this uh, wind and solar and that would be sufficient
1: wow um a quick a couple of quick follow-ups just so we understand all the assumptions that went into this math um were you I know that the the study mentions that you're looking at the ocean impacts um, how does offshore energy generation play into this scenario you were just talking about if at all and um, rooftop solar as well do those did you sort of look at those um, are those just not? We're not. We're ignoring those for now. We're just talking about land.
2: Um, no, we actually def consider offshore wind. It, this was one of the major, uh, I would say, improvements in this study over the California specific study we conducted a few years ago, um, and that was because offshore wind really took off over the last few years in the U.S. And there, we're. The, the Western uh, US, the Pacific seaboard, we've only started to consider um, land uh, leasing projects. So we modeled offshore wind and we found that uh, we need about seven to 22 gigawatts of offshore wind um, across the three, Washington, Oregon, and California, with most of that being in California, um, mostly because that's where the good high quality accessible offshore wind locations are located. Um, and California has already started this process of identifying call and lease areas for these types of projects. Um, and we find that coincidentally, those numbers are in largely in agreement with what they're planning um, and well, are hoping to see and with other studies that have looked at. So it's not we're not an order of magnitude off in any way.
0: All right. So let's start getting into then the conflicts that can arise when you're talking about using a a large but reasonable number of acres across the West for these renewables. Obviously, then the challenge is where do you put it and how do you avoid conflicts with human uses, with wildlife, with protecting the most important ecosystems? And the interesting question that you set out to answer here is how much does that cost? How much extra do we have to pay to avoid those conflicts?
2: So how do we do it? Well, a lot of this is based off of pure avoidance. So um, we develop these scenarios in which we actually exclude projects from the possibility of even con- like being allowed to develop on these types of lands. We came up with three scenarios, um, the first of which is just our BAU, which is We only protect legally uh, identified areas that have some set of legal protections and these are what you would consider national parks national monuments um, designated roadless areas no development on should be allowed on these primarily managed for biodiversity Um, and we had a second siding level which is um, what we've called administratively protected areas these are areas that have uh that don't have a wholesale prohibitions against development, but have to undergo a very extensive review process and permitting process in order to be uh, eligible. And so the things probably, like na-
0: yeah. national conservation areas, areas of critical environmental exactly. concern, those sorts of things.
2: Yes, okay. critical habitat um, for threatened endangered species that goes mm-hmm. in this bucket of, of land. And then the last one are uh, what we is what we've been calling high conservation value lands. These are areas that don't have any of those designations that we just mentioned, um, but have been uh, identified as having ecological value nonetheless. Um, and these are what we would consider um uh, wildlife corridors or um, intact lands that basically have very low fragmentation. Um, eco- regions that TNC has um, studied extensively for ecological value um, through their eco regional assessments. Uh, so we developed, there are over 200 individual data sets that went into the development of these three scenarios. And uh, we vetted them through a very extensive process with TNC scientists from each of the 11 state chapters. Um, So we did have state-specific expertise to review uh, and consult on what was included to make sure that there was, of course, we captured what was important in that state, but also ensured a level of consistency and implementation of that definition across the states so that we weren't like Favoring development in one state versus at the expense of another.
1: And what are the costs associated with that highest protection scenario? Is it does it make it more expensive um, overall? It definitely does. So there is that that trade off between cost
2: and uh, avoiding con- high conservation value areas. We do find, and that's consistent with our studies in the past for a smaller scale. Other studies that have asked a similar question in a different part of the world, um, but we find that the m- numbers are fairly modest in terms of the cost premium. We find that it's about three percent if we look at just the high, this you know very efficient high electrification policy scenario. Um, it's a three percent increase in the uh, highest or most protective siding level. So um, 3%, of course, uh, from my perspective, is very modest. And that's because when we compare 3% to number percentage increases that developers have to in- encounter when they are developing in higher uh, conservation value areas, with the mitigation costs they pay, the additional, um, the runtime and the lead time for getting the projects up and running and the permitting, we think that that's well within the margin of error um, and trade-off in terms of proposing a project in an area that could be more sensitive.
1: So just to recap real quick, basically what you're saying is we can cite all of the renewable energy we need um, in the West under this high electrification scenario um, and still avoid all of these um intact habitats that you identified? Not all. So I can give
2: you some specific numbers. We looked at uh, several metrics um, after we did the energy modeling and we performed this um, approach to identifying these these areas, these footprints of um, wind and solar and transmission line development. We find that we can um, reduce development on natural lands by about 50 to 60%. And we can almost entirely avoid development on high conservation value lands. Um, and we can avoid about two-thirds of the development on intact land. So it's not complete avoidance. It, we are mitigating the... We're starting out probably with a lot of impact, and we're cutting that down significantly, but we can't avoid it altogether. Um, but for key species like sage grouse, which is um, has been one of these major what we call focal species in energy siting, uh, we can actually develop avoid development on any kind of critical habitat for sage grouse under that our our most optimistic scenario.
0: Your work is obviously at the intersection of ecology and and natural science and economics. Uh, I I wonder if you have thoughts on some of the work of folks like uh, Professor Partha Dasgupta. From, from Cambridge, who's done a lot of work, and I, well, hey, I believe he was knighted for, for his his work on putting a value on nature, uh, a, a dollar value on, on nature. Does that help in the way folks think about this energy transition from the work you're doing and what is the extra cost to avoid these conflicts? Is there also then an economic cost, is it helpful to put an economic cost on the damage caused by not avoiding those conflicts?
2: That is a really interesting question, actually fairly relevant to um, our study that we've released um, at the national scale. We had actually considered using some of those ecosystem service numbers um, in a way that allows us to get around this Binary issue, like developers, mm-hmm. you can't go here. You can go, like
0: it's just a cost of avoidance as opposed to a cost of
2: exactly damage. yes. And so we wanted to capture this in a much more in a continuum and much less like go no go areas. Um, unfortunately, those numbers rest on a ton a, another set of another very extensive set of assumptions that. We couldn't capture for the wide variety of ecosystem types, species, different land values, uh, e- ecological values. Um, but we did do an extensive literature review to consider something like this. Um, and we decided that it was just too precarious in terms of the number of different assumptions that we would have to have made.
1: Um, going back to your. Um the scenario we were talking about with high electrification and sort of low landscape impacts or minimizing landscape impacts, does that push these projects closer to communities and in in people? And is that a concern, um, like a social concern, a political concern?
2: It most certainly does. So we found this to be the case when we looked in just California, we were using metrics of housing density we found that housing density increased as we ratcheted up our environmental protections, um, and which makes complete sense, right? If we're going to avoid development in natural areas, we're pushing that development places where uh, there's more human develop- hu- like human activity. Um, so there's there is um, a potential tussle in terms of. Uh, where we're encouraging development in order to save development in certain areas. Um, We do find that the reduction in natural lands results in an increase in development on agricultural lands. Um, And a lot of that agricultural land development we see as being very compatible um, because of the possible benefits this brings to rural livelihoods. Of course, there is going to be community acceptance Challenges um, ensuring that there's procedural justice in where these projects are being proposed and who benefits and how they benefit, Um, but yes, on the whole, we do see that there will be communities impacted. The interesting thing um, in our Western study is that when you look at this at a much at a larger scale, not just California, is that um, we don't actually see an increase in the total number of people impacted. And that's because of this shift from wind to solar as we conserve areas with high conservation value. Um, and and that's simply because wind takes up more land on the whole. They're, they're just the total amount of land area- Overall footprint
0: is, is bigger. Yeah.
2: Bigger. And so the likelihood of a community being close to a wind farm is going to be much higher than a solar farm. Um, so our- co- what we came up with is it's on the whole, across all the scenarios, we see about a one, like one out of 10 people in the Western US is going to be within striking distance, visible distance of a new uh, wind or solar project development. And that slightly reduces, um, or about stays the kind of, there's this, there's this break even point between this shift that leads to about the same number or slightly fewer people um, being in proximity of one of these projects.
1: So we work on federal lands for the most part. Um, I'm curious, are there federal policy implications from this research? What, what would you advocate for? um, What would you advocate that federal land managers do based on your findings?
2: Um, yeah, that's a great question. I We specifically um, did a, a post-analysis looking at how much of this land, of this development would be on public lands, um, and we find that it's actually not very significant. So um, there's the DRECP, which stands for the Desert Renewable uh, Conservation Plan, um, was for just this. Desert Southwest in California, and the BLM is currently undergoing their solar um, programmatic environmental impact assessment revision. There's been a lot of input into that process, so I'm not going to try to give my two cents on that. Um, but that—that's to say, we do see a role for sol- solar and wind development on public lands. It—we're um, seeing this on the order of two to three two to seven million acres across both technologies and that's actually being dominated by wind for solar we're only seeing about a uh, half a million acre of development of solar on public lands and it does actually increase as siting protections increase because of that shift but it's not significant it still hovers around half a million um, and this is roughly so to give you a sense of how that compares with what the BLM identified through the DRACP. They found about um, a third of a million acres, uh, up to 800,000 acres. So we're kind of, for the Western US, we're not actually increasing that significantly. Um, And that's mostly because a lot of the high conservation value areas are also on public land. So when we start to, to pull back on that type of development, we're also... Disproportionately pulling back on development on public lands.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So
2: yes, there, there is a there is a role. Um, we do see predominantly development on pri- private lands, um, but it, it's a significant, but I would say fairly uh, modest role for public lands.
0: So, what's next for you and this line of research? You mentioned the the national study that's about to come out, and I'd love to hear real briefly what's that about, and then what are you looking at next?
2: So the national study was actually just released earlier this week. We um, shared uh, what we're calling the executive summary, uh, but it is so long that some people have just called it the report. Um, it's no longer really a summary. <laughs> so it summarizes basically um, a much actually lengthier set of analyses that we did Um with a similar goal in mind to look at whether this is compatible net but now at a at pretty much like the whole scale of possible development for the u s and we took a slightly different approach instead of these binary exclusions restrictions on development. we looked at a continuum we developed a non monetized um, impact score for win uh, for uh, environmental impacts as well as social impacts. So that was another dimension that we added. Um, and it was actually really a result of observing these trends that we in other states in the western US and California. Um, and then the last the um, set, last set of improvements or innovations was to model other types of renewable technologies, not just a generic wind farm or a generic solar farm. We looked at agrivoltaics. Um, and where they, those could be sited and how much land that could avoid, uh, new g- like greenfield development projects. And then we also uh, looked at co-location of wind and solar. So how we could develop both projects and utilize a transmission line, a substation, all the road infrastructure that comes with building just one type of project, we may as well add you know, um, another several hundred, a few hundred acres of solar, Um, and be able to not avoid a whole new transmission corridor. So uh, we looked at that. And then the last sub-technology I would call, it was um, fixed tilt versus tracking solar, which is kind of a more nuanced point for those energy geeks. Um, The interesting thing about them that very few people realize is that the fixed tilt solar, which are panels that don't move, um, they actually use less land per unit generation.
0: Oh, I guess that makes sense, of course. Right. Because you don't have to have room for them to move all around follow the sun. Okay, sure.
2: Exactly. Yep. And because of the tracking solar uh, orientation, when it tracks, it causes shading impacts. And as in order to avoid the shading impacts, they space out these tracking panels. And so they have lower land use efficiency. Um, and so we, we actually investigated those separately and kind of looked at as we increase um, the constraints on on land use impacts where we see more adoption of fixed versus tracking and how much land that could spare.
0: So, well, Kate knows I've been wanting to do an agrivoltaics episode and, and really geek out on the, the, the research and the science that's coming out there. So I think we'll m- bump that up to the top of our list.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really exciting area. Um, and we we had to rely on a lot of very new um, studies on this topic to be able to do this. And it's definitely going to be an emerging uh, area of interest. And California is trying to get ahead on that as well.
0: All right. Well, Grace Wu, thank you for all of your insights and your papers. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Uh, once again, Grace Wu, assistant professor in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Barbara Thanks for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, the Colorado River deal is pretty good news, but here's some more. The United States Geological Survey has rejected a bid by members of Congress and the copper industry to add copper to the United States critical minerals list. A bipartisan group of senators including Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin sent a letter to the USGS in February asking it to add copper to the list, citing data from a copper industry group. The critical minerals list is a federal list of non-fuel minerals deemed critical to national or economic security but vulnerable to supply chain disruptions. Were copper to be added to the list, it could help ex- Were copper to be added to the list, it could help expedite domestic mining projects such as the Resolution Copper Mine proposed at Oak Flat. Copper could still show up on the list in the future, but for now, the USGS says we've got a sufficient domestic supply of it, and copper recycling is also on the rise.
0: And that'll do it for today. If you liked this episode, please go give us a review wherever you are listening right now. And hey, go follow us on TikTok. If you are on there, we are pretty easy to find. Just search Western. Priorities. And finally, you can email us with any comments, podcast at WesternPriorities.org.
1: Thanks again to Grace Wu for joining us, and thank you for listening to The Landscape.